1: simple example that I use in the book. You know, I might be in a meeting and my colleague Marla says something really smart and I'm thinking, oh man i got to say something smart because I want my boss to think that I'm smart too. I mean, Marvin's always come up with the smart stuff. You know? That's a motive versus we're in the meeting and, and the discussion goes around to something that I've had some experience with. And I think, oh, I want to share this because it may help contribute to the course of the conversation. Two different motives. And these are very subtle examples, but you do have to pause because we all are so busy. and We go on autopilot. You have to pause and say, you know, what is my real motive here?
2: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Todd Davis. Todd's the Chief People Officer for Franklin Covey, and author of a book titled 15 Proven Practices to Build More Effective Relationships at Work, which book could just as easily have been titled Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build More Effective Relationships in Sales. I mean, what I enjoyed about this conversation with Todd is that You'll learn that building relationships at work is very similar to building them with your buyers and with your customers, that you have to view the job of helping your customer make a purchase decision as the job of building a team of stakeholders and getting them all on the same page at the right time. So Todd and I are going to talk about how to build credibility through how you behave, in particular how you demonstrate character and competence. Now you all know how important I believe character is and how easily buyers sense whether you have good character or not. We're also going to dig into your motivations. You know, One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, what you do speaks so loudly I cannot hear what you say, which I managed to bungle that quote in this conversation. But the point being is, are your motives, are your motivations aligned with your values and your actions? If not, it quickly becomes very clear to your buying team. And more importantly, are you even aware of what your underlying motivations are? You know, If you're telling your buyer that you're there to help them, but then pressure them to close the deal before the month end, they'll become quite aware of what your motivations truly are. So again, all that and much, much more. But before we get to Todd, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thank you for that. And also, if you haven't connected with me on LinkedIn, please do. That's linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. That's right. There's only one real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it.
1: Todd Davis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate being here. So, where are you sheltering in place? Well, I uh, live in Salt Lake City, Utah, where uh, I work for a company called Franklin Covey, and our headquarters are here, and I live not far from our headquarters.
2: Short commute, if you had one.
1: It is, <laughs> yeah. Back when I went back, when we used to have them. It was pretty short, <laughs> twenty minutes.
2: <laughs> so, has this been a big transition for you to, you know, to the work from home environment?
1: Um, you know, with with our organization. Uh, We have in the U.S. and Canada, we have about nine, just under 900 employees and uh, probably 700 of those 900 have been home office forever. I mean, that's that's the nature of of how they're structured. Our corporate offices where I work, uh, this has been a new thing for us. And so we're we're all adapting. We actually had a flood in our building several months before the coronavirus hit. And we had to leave the building for several weeks while they repaired all the damage. And so we had kind of a dress rehearsal for working from home, if you will. <laughs> Worked that well.
2: Yeah, well, get people accustomed to it. So for sure. Well, we're we're gonna talk today about uh one of your books that you've written called Get Better: 15 Proven Practices to Build More Effective Relationships at Work. And i picked this up originally a couple of years ago. And because yeah, you know, I'm my philosophy of sales is that it all starts with the human-to-human aspect of, of sales, making that connection, building that relationship, which yeah, quite frankly is not in fashion with some people in sales these days. So I sort of retitled your book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build More Effective Relationships in Sales. So um, what I thought was interesting about, well, several things interesting about your book, but one of the things is that as you talk about Building teams. What you're really talking about is building yourself.
1: Well, that's that's exactly the approach I took. Uh, I, I, I've been, as I mentioned, I've been with Franklin Covey for about 25 years. In the last 16 years, I've been in the role of Chief People Officer, and in that role, I've observed and coached leaders and others at all you know levels within the organization. And and while we talk all the time about it's how important it is to hire the right people have the right people on your teams and in your organizations it's actually the nature of the relationships between those people that is uh, any organization certainly a sales organization's uh, true competitive advantage and so that's that was the premise for the book and and that um, we are most effective in influencing others when we start with ourselves there was a a play if you read the book uh, written by Jean Paul Sartre Uh, back in 1940 and and the play is called no exit and he just very quickly he the play begins with these three people these individuals in the afterlife and they're in this room trapped in this room why it's called no exit there's no doors windows are bricked up and they start to irritate each other as, as any of us would and because they irritate each other they try to change each other and it doesn't go so well and it only escalates their frustration and they slowly come to realize that You know, they're in hell. They thought hell was fire and brimstone, but no, hell is actually other people. (laughs) And so (laughs) Thanksgiving dinner, that's right. That's exactly right. And in his play, he makes the point that in this room, there are no mirrors, meaning that what would benefit these people best is if they would look in the mirror and decide what they need to improve upon or where they need to change or where they need to get better, as I titled the book, um, to most effectively influence the other person.
2: And this idea of influencing others, and you, you bring it up, is, is regardless of the profession, but we're going to talk specifically in the sales world right now, is, is bi-dimensional. You are building a team inside the company, and there is a requirement as an individual to be able to influence others in order to get your job done. And just as you have to influence the, your buyers and your prospects, to help them make the right decision for purchasing your product.
1: I agree 100%. I mean, when when people hear the word relationships or building effective relationships, many think, well, that's a nice to have, but I've, I've got a lot of, you know, work to do, or I've got a project to complete, or I've got this revenue I've got to bring in and don't really have time to stop and, and talk about relationships. But just to your point, unless you are, I don't know, a pro golfer, or maybe you, you run a company where you are the only employee, well, the rest of the world, we all get our results with and through others. And so developing and continuing to improve upon these effective relationships is more, much more than just a nice thing to have, but it's really really foundational to achieving every one of the important goals that we're all trying to achieve. Because again, we all get results with and through others.
2: Well, relationship is one of these interesting words that has become freighted with, with meaning that... that said in some cases in sales you hear people write about oh you know you don't need to have a relationship with the buyer because they think that a relationship connotes a friendship as mm-hmm. opposed to, And so I, I, I've started using the word connection versus relationship to sort of, sort of take some of that uh, fraught meaning away from it so people understand is so you, you need to have a, this connection you, this at a human level that that uh, and we'll get into some of the characteristics you know behind that connection. But it ultimately boils down to influence.
1: You're right. It's a great point. Whether whether we call it a relationship or a connection, it's it's the level of trust. In my opinion, it's the level of trust you're able to to build between the two of you. In the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey talked about your EBA, and in fact, it's one of the it's one of the practices of the fifteen. I I titled it "Take Stock of Your Emotional Bank Accounts." And mm-hmm and much like a financial bank account in our relationships or our connections, as you're calling them with others, we make deposits and we take withdrawals. Unlike a financial bank account, we we should never be making deposits with the intent of taking a withdrawal. But, but our EBA or our emotional bank account with others is all about the level of trust we have with, with our clients, with our sales colleagues, with, with everyone else. And, and when that when that level of trust is high, then work goes so much smoother and so much more productive and effectively when that trust is low, then just the opposite happens. And so it sort of
2: starts, and you talk about this in the book, it starts with credibility, which without credibility, there's no trust. And But credibility is built on, excuse me, <laughs> easy for me to say today. Um, <laughs> is, is It's based on two things that I, I talk a lot about, is is character. And competence and and character is one of these things again that that I think we don't talk enough about in business and certainly in sales. You know, when when they're interviewing people, I oftentimes talk to managers. Well, you know, how do you assess someone's character? Are you asking questions about their their character and their values? And the answer often is no. No,
1: well, it's a great it's a great point. Character is is foundational and 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 as you stated, and as we state in the book, you must have both to be truly credible, but character, I liken this to the roots of a tree. It's foundational and it's, but it's the thing we can't necessarily see much like we can see the competencies or the skills of the person. And, but, but, but the root system in a tree is the thing that makes all the difference that weathers the storms that helps it intertwine with, with other trees. And so this character, you know, your integrity, your, um, honesty, quite frankly, your, your intentions of what it is you're really trying to accomplish, all plays into someone's character. And it is uh, just like the roots of a tree. It is foundational to, to anyone's uh, effectiveness and success.
2: Right. I mean, there's an old expression about character. You talk about it in the book as well as it's characters doing the right thing when no one is looking. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's so important. As, just as you said, it's foundational. as, as who you are. And I have found over decades in sales and selling to people around the world, different cultures, and so on. One thing people really glom onto really quickly is yeah, do I, your character, right? Do I, this first perception of who you are is really based on our character.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, you know, we're a sales organization as well. And we have the term we use for our, our salespeople where many call it account executive, we call it client partners, just to reinforce just what you're talking about. Does the client feel like you're really here to help me? Or are you here to sell me something? Are you really my partner? Are you really looking out for us and, and seeing, you know, what, what we need, to, what gaps we need to fill or where we need to improve on? And are are you really my partner? Or are you Selling something to me, so you can make yeah. a commission or whatever,
2: right? Which and you refer to in your book, Stephen M. R. Covey's books, The Speed of Trust, and he's been on this program. When I favorite book of mine, and we're going to touch on a few themes from that later. You had an interesting story in the book about yeah you know, how character doesn't mean that you're perfect, and I think <laughs> that that you know, this is something that people time oftentimes mistake is think. Yeah, you know, if they're in sales, and they think, "Oh, if I make a mistake, you know, I've, I'm just going to screw up," and and they so then become sort of paralyzed by this idea that they can't act in a way that that's authentic to them because they're afraid of screwing up. And and so, if you don't mind, tell us the story about uh, the missing contract.
1: Yeah. Well. It- <laughs> It's, uh, I'm just chuckling because uh, it, it was an embarrassing time, but it was a huge lesson in character to me. I used to work in the medical industry, and and I was in charge of putting contracts together with physician groups that we would use. And this is, again, I'm I'm not a spring chicken, and this is back in the day when we actually used typewriters, and there were not electronic <laughs> files. And this particular contract was going back and forth between our company and the contracted physician group. And we were making changes and edits. We had a deadline when we needed this group to start seeing our patients and again i was a young manager and all of a sudden we're bound to the final wire we have a couple of days left and the contract went missing and nobody could find the contract and and they swore they had given it to us and we swore we had given it to them i remember specifically seeing it and giving it to this woman by the name of linda meek if she's ever hears this my presentation, <laughs> she'll never forgive me. But I remember you. her. Yeah, that's right. And so, anyway, we, we everybody was frustrated. A lot of work had gone into this, and there was no copy of it. Well, with well, the clock was ticking, and so we just all threw up our arms and said, "Okay, we got to quickly put another contract together." Unfortunately, at that back then, we had good memories, and so we put in a lot of work, some long days, to recreate this. You know, twenty pages I recall it, nineteen or twenty page contract. Got it all taken care of in the nick of time. People got over their frustration, and we got it in place, and this this group of physicians started seeing our patients. Well, several months later, I was working in my office. Now, again, I keep reminding you I was young at the time, okay? I was young. And I was looking for a particular folder or something, and I went to pull this uh, these papers out of my desk, and paper clipped to the back of these papers was the missing contract. Mm. And I was sick to my stomach. I just was thinking about all that anger and those people that had to do all that rework, including me. And I joke when I'm when I'm telling others this. My first thought was, I wonder how Linda Meek got this put back in my drawer. <laughs> but anyway, I I that night I went I went home thinking, gosh, maybe I should just throw it away. You know, everything's moved on, and I don't want people to know that I'm the I was the culprit, but I don't know why, and I say this with humility, it wasn't because I was some high integrity person at the time, but the next morning I picked up the contract and I walked down to my boss's office. His name was Al Yenchek, Dr. Yenchek, and I went in there and I said, Dr. Yenchek you are going to kill me. And he said, what? And I showed him the contract, and he looked at the contract, and then he looked at me, and then he looked back down, at it, and he says, well, I'm impressed with you, Todd. I think I would have just thrown it away. And we both laughed. And then he, we talked about, you know, the mistake I had made and the the way he treated me that day. And more importantly, the way he treated me going forward after that day, just taught me volumes about character that to your point, Andy, it's not about being perfect. It's not about never making mistakes. It's about owning up to your mistakes. It's about having the integrity to To do the right thing and to admit when you're wrong and to you know do your best to to try and not make that mistake again. And uh, I've never forgotten that lesson. And, and I'm far from perfect, and I, I continue to make mistakes, but I, I do try and own them, and I try and and try and do the right thing the next time and learn each with each mistake.
2: And such an important lesson for sellers because in the course of selling any product or services, we say a lot of words, and they aren't all right. Right? Is you, yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to get through a sales process without inadvertently misrepresenting something to you. Maybe you have a you know a spec wrong, or or maybe you misdescribe uh, you know what a feature does and the benefit they might get from it. And too often sellers just want to cover it up. And if when you do that, then you just get lumped into the pile of of, of sellers that everybody thinks the way sellers act. Right? Instead of distinguishing yourself by saying. Yeah, we. I, you know, yesterday I mentioned this. Yeah, I apologize. That's not the way this works. Let me explain to you and walk through you, walk walk through it with you how this does work and what you'll get out of it. Customers remember that Very that good accrues, accrues to your benefit.
1: I couldn't agree more. In fact, you're, you know, when we go into recovery mode from a mistake we've made, often we will build. More trust than than if we hadn't made the mistake in the in the first place now ideally we don 't make mistakes you know when we 're working with clients but but when we do and the way we handle that, and I think about my own experience with with uh, places that i 've bought services from or goods from, and when mistakes or errors have been made, the way that they have gone or not gone about recovering from those has a tremendous influence on my Wanting to be an advocate and a, and a you know a, a cheerleader for them going forward.
2: Yeah, I had a, a boss who at one point suggested that you should actually deliberately make mistakes in order to accomplish exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> is that is that you know you create a situation where you have inject some errors and then come back and say, look, we we made a mistake. I want to make sure we covered this. That everybody's clear. And I don't think I ever did that intentionally, but it you know, you can see where it might work.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's good point.
2: So, We talked about character and competence make up credibility, and you had a good story, a sales-related story, actually, in the book about, about competence. But you start saying that people think that strong character can make up for a lack of competence, and I agree with you. That's that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I, I worked with a couple of stories here. These are some of the, again, client partners, as we call our account executives that I work with. and I worked with one who was amazing at just all of the nice things that you want people to do for you, remembering your birthday, asking, you know, last time you talked, even if it had been six months ago saying, Hey, now, now, you know, your son was, was ill with the, with the flu. Did he recover? Is he doing okay? Or, or whatever it was, this person just had this amazing memory and very thoughtful, you know, extremely thoughtful. And that, that was a great quality. But what I started to learn, the more I, I worked with this person is that, They, they. I don't know that it was intentional, but their whole life because they had been that way, they hadn't spent as much time or energy focusing on building and developing their skill set and their competency. And I bet in certain situations they were able to get by with just this tremendous amount of thoughtfulness and consideration of others that made everybody like them, and and so they continued to you know have work and and be hired. But it got to a point uh, in our organization where clients you know had their this was a consultant, and clients had their choice of consultants. And they'd been working with this person and another consultant, and they chose the other consultant. And, and this person was quite upset. But again, what I could see, and they and they couldn't see as clearly as just the other consultant. While, well, while well, certainly respectful and and nice, maybe not off the charts considerate and thoughtful like like this you know, one consultant was, they had the skill set and had kept and continued to invest in themselves and, and keep up on their skills that they could really provide that value. And so it's why I make the point that, you know, you got to have both character and competence and a whole lot of one doesn't make up for a lack of the other, you've really got to be strong in both. And and, and like, you know, alternatively, we've had, uh, I've worked with salespeople who are masters at their product knowledge or at their consultative abilities. But, but they're, uh not just it's not just about being thoughtful, but they're they maybe don't have the integrity <laughs> that you would hope they mm-hmm. would have. And and that doesn't work either. And so it and so it's what's really a careful balance of both.
2: Yeah. I mean you in your story about uh Craig and Marta in the book, about Craig who they were sort of you know up for contention for taking on the, I guess, a project and Marta won over Craig when you said that Craig had allowed his competence to wane and And this is this is such a critical thing for sellers. And I spent a lot of time on my soapbox on this show talking about it. Is this idea that you mentioned is investing in yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Is is we all have if we don't invest in ourselves, we all have expiration dates, sell by dates. And and I think it's as true or maybe more true in sales than anywhere, because oftentimes you're working with uh, selling products and services that are continually evolving. You're buyers' behaviors and the way they can access and process information is changing. And if you don't acknowledge that and say, well, I need to invest in myself. I can't rely on anybody else to, it'd be nice if my company trained me, they give me content to read, training, great. But at some degree, you got to wait. <laughs> you know that, and to me, this is sort of a character issue as well. Is do you have the character to admit or have the intellectual humility to say, yeah, I need to keep investing in myself? in order to be relevant on what I'm doing.
1: So, so critical. Um, uh, Again, referring back to seven habits, which was, which is kind of our operating system at Franklin Covey. One of our, one of our foundational solutions. Habit seven is to sharpen the saw and it's, it's about renewal in you know mm-hmm. the body, heart, mind, and spirit. And and you know, you've seen the studies, I've seen the studies and, and I used to kind of scoff not scoff at them, but but wonder how true they were. But but boy, they're proving true. And that is that within it's predicted now that like within fifteen, twenty years of the work that is done by human beings will be replaced by artificial intelligence. And we see it happening all around us. And it's just one of many indicators to me that, boy, if if you don't continue to invest in yourself, if you don't continue to learn and grow, regardless of your age, regardless of your your, um, professional level, you are going to be obsolete you are going to you know, quickly or slowly become obsolete and less relevant. Uh, and and so I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to the teams we work on or the companies we work for to continually be investing in ourselves, to staying up on on new trends and and new new products and new services and, and just keep that continual renewal going.
2: Right. And I think it's really important for people to understand that what that renewal constitutes is and when you use that statistic about you know, jobs being replaced by artificial intelligence, is that they're not taking on the jobs that require complex thought that require building nuanced relationships with people or you know synthesizing information in real time to present you know new solutions or new opportunities for customers it's the repetitive stuff you know the lowest sort of the lowest level tasks mm-hmm. the low hanging fruit and so if you're in sales and you're sort of kicking along at the bottom of the the chart in terms of performance Yeah, you can sell stuff just by sort of going through the basic steps. But at some point, those basic steps, to your point, may be able to be automated. And so you got to look at at higher level skills. What are the things that you can invest in yourself? Uh, It's not just going to be knowledge as much as sometimes about how you think, how you perceive the world. Exactly. Okay, so we've talked about that. I mean, incredibility. this whole idea of reinvention and renewal, when I talked with Stephen M. R. Covey on the show, we I forget the stat he used, but it's, you know, the number of times you basically have to reinvent yourself. You know, it's like, I think he used the status in his book is every two and a half to four years, something like that. Mm-hmm. You pretty much have to reinvent yourself in order to stay relevant. And I think that, I like that term reinvention perhaps better than renewal, but because maybe it's more descriptive in my mind. But I mean, looking look in my own career is in sales over decades here I'd counted it out the other day, I think I had maybe eight or nine Significant reinventions of myself, mm-hmm. you know, from from being a field salesperson to being a, uh, a marketing person, basically, to um, working at my first startup that I'd never worked at before and building a sales channel to, uh, you know, being a VP of sales at a high growth startup, all these steps along with being a consultant, being a podcaster, you know, these are all things that require investment. And if I hadn't done it, I would have been. Yeah, irrelevant a long time
1: ago. Left in the dust. Yeah, no, it's a, it is a continual, uh, and I love the term reinvent as well. It's a continual evolve uh, you know, ongoing involvement, and and it's not, you know, when we say we've reinvented ourselves every four years, it's not like okay, we do this and then we stop. it on this day, here we go, and now I'm switched again. It's this ongoing, you know, evolutionary thing, week to week, day to day, where we 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 smart people uh, take their time as they put together their weekly plan, what they're going to get accomplished, that they block out time to, you know, read that journal or read this additional book or or take this course or whatever and so it's this it's this um, ongoing process that i think um, benefits everyone to 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 really buy into and be participating in
2: another big theme in the book and you alluded to it earlier with with when talking about integrity being so important and and that really gets down to your motives right your motivations and how transparent you are and this idea see is, is, is such a big thing in sales is is that we're still struggling with sort of as a profession is that yeah you know, we say yeah we're buyer centric and we'll go to a buyer and say well here's we're trying to be very transparent our motivations here we're just trying to help you we're here to help you make a good decision and then we get to the last week of the month and it's like yeah but if you close in the next five days we're <laughs> going to give you a big discount. <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> I think we've all been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's endemic
2: to the way we we do business and sales. And what you're communicating to the to the buyer is yeah, here to help you not so much and it doesn't mean they're not going to end up buying from you, but they're under no illusions from that point forward as what the relationship's really
1: about. Exactly. And what your real motives are pra- practice number 9 as you mentioned is is called examine your real motives. And what I have found in in working with people is that more often than not, we don't intentionally have bad motives. You know, a healthy motive uplifts you and and those around you and an unhealthy motive does just the opposite. And I don't meet many people who go to unhealthy motives intentionally. I think we go on, at least my experience has been, we go on autopilot and we actually Mm -hmm. lose sight of what our real motive was or is. And, and so my, my, counsel and my suggestion to myself and to others is to pause and step back. And I have to ask myself now, what is really driving me here? I mean, a simple example that I use in the book, you know, I might be in a meeting and, and my colleague Marla says something really smart. And I'm thinking, Oh man, I got to say something smart because I want my boss to think that I'm smart too. I mean, Marvin's always coming up with the smart stuff. You know? That's a motive versus we're in the meeting and and the, and the discussion goes around to something that I've had some experience with. And I think, Oh, I want to share this because it may help, you know, contribute to the course of the conversation, two different motives. And, and these are very subtle examples, but, but you do have to pause because we all are so busy and we go on autopilot. You have to pause and say, now, what is my real motive here? Do I really, do I, do, am I really passionate about helping this customer and the services or the product that we provide? Do I see the benefit and, and do I really want her to experience this because I know it will really improve, you know, XYZ and their company or... I really want to do this because we're going to buy that new car next week. If I can just get this last commission, and then I'll have enough money to do that. And yeah, the practical helper, but my real my real focus is on getting one more sale so I hit the next benchmark in my you know in my forecast and all that. So it's yeah, it's something that we have to stop, or at least I think wise people stop and check themselves on all the time.
2: Yeah, I always talk about sales as a deliberate. Act. You know, it's it's to your point about autopilot. You want to stay mm-hmm. off autopilot. You want to be very conscious and in the in the moment. But it, it occurred to me as you were talking that oh, so often in sales or whatever profession is is, you know, people always talk about having a, a passion for what you're doing. But what they don't talk about is is the motives, because you know, which based on what you're talking about is, is really what animates your passion is having the right motives for what you're doing. And and I think you know, people talk, I need the passion, I need to be in love. Well, start with, are you really sort of in love with your motivations for why you're doing what you're doing?
1: Yeah, we, we've all, it's such a great point you bring up, Andy. I, we we see these, usually they're actors, but people that are on talk shows, um, you know, watching some night talk show and some actor will be talking about her experience or his experience and they say, and, and I hear the phrase often, I, and I can't believe I get paid for doing this. And And I think about that. I think, you know, what, what, a rewarding career that you're in, whatever you do, whatever sales role you're in or anything. If you, at the end of each day, it doesn't mean it's easy, but that, but that your motive is because you enjoy bringing insights and help to other people. And so you go to bed at night thinking, wow, I love what I do because it's, it's connecting with what really motivates me and that's in, in helping others. Uh, right. So great point you bring up between motive and passion, the correlation between motive and passion.
2: And you had sort of your three clues for assessing your your motives, but I, the one that I wanted to focus on the time we had was was declare your intent, because I think that aligns very closely with it. And you write about, again, from Stephen M. R. Covey about declare your intent, express your agenda and emotions, then be true to your intent. And I think this is a part where sellers really are hesitant to go, which is to tell the buyer <laughs> what they want to have happen. Right. And how they're going to help them.
1: Right. It is such, and I learned this valuable approach and concept from our good friend Stephen M.R. Covey. That's the gentleman who actually hired me uh, 25 years ago at what was then called the Covey Leadership Center. So he was my first boss, and he's just an amazing. Human being, an amazing author, and really the the expert on on trust, uh, global expert on trust now. But but I learned very early on in my career with with Franklin Covey that this importance of declaring your intent up front. Now I'm in, as I mentioned, the chief people officer role at Franklin Covey, so I get to have a lot of challenging and difficult conversations uh, with people who are maybe on a performance plan, or or there's been some you know other big issue involved. But I have found, and it plays out true with customers as well, when you're in a sales role, if you will begin every conversation, at least every emotional conversation, with declaring your intent. You know, when I'm sitting down with somebody to have a tough conversation, it will be, hey, Cindy, I I want you to know, well, we're going to, you know, we have some tough things to talk about. I want you to know my only intent is to help you be wildly successful in your role. You've done a lot of good things on our team, and there's some things that I think might be a blind spot. Uh, for you or something you're not aware of. And so I just want you to know, while this is going to be, you know, difficult to talk about, my only intent is to help you be successful. And I think it transfers right over to what you're saying with salespeople, talking with with their clients, that people, we talk about EBA, your emotional bank account, and the level of trust you have. Nothing earns you more trust than saying right up front, hey, I want you to know, I'm here to help. Yes, I'm in a a sales role, and we have a product or a service that I think is magnificent. It's why I choose to spend my time doing this. But I want you to know my only intent is to see if this service will be of benefit to you and your organization. I think it will. Based on all the pre-work I did, I think it will. And so if we can have a few minutes to talk and I can explain this to you, and if we agree together that it doesn't help, Great. I don't want to waste any more of your time, but I want you to know my only intent is to is to share with you what I think will be really beneficial to you and your organization. I'm I'm making that up, but I mean something like that would buy a lot of trust with me. I get called on by a lot of vendors in my role, and that would just if if I had that dialogue right up front, I would say, "Wow, I'm I'm dealing with a straight shooter here. This is great."
2: Well, even if the the seller takes it a step further and and says what they get out of it, if if they're able to help you make that decision. What do they get out of it? I mean, you are talking about being completely transparent about your motivations. I mean, Adam Grant talks about this in Give and Take. You know, mm-hmm. you you can be a giver with an agenda,
1: and that's okay as long as you're clear about that. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, this is how I make a living, um, but but my my only goal is to uh, while well, I'm making a living at this, is to make sure I'm doing things that benefit other people.
2: Yeah, you had a great line in the in the book. And I think it's really important for. You know, for sellers to hear and and remember, which was, you know, we judge ourselves largely on our our intentions. So we judge ourselves largely on our intentions. Others judge us by our behavior, and it's that gap between the two that really speaks so loudly.
1: Uh, no, I'd say thank you for reminding me that I learned that you know I, I didn't invent that phrase. I learned that from someone else, but but that's the that's the essence of declaring your intent because we think well you should know what I'm thinking you should know what I'm doing judge me on that and yet I'm going to judge you on your actions and so by declaring our intent it it lets them you know into our our mind and what our what our real motives and our intentions are.
2: Yeah, one of my all time favorite sayings is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I, a lot of my favorite sayings come from him, but is. Uh, what you do speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. <laughs> and so true, yeah. Sales words to remember. And then, last point to cover is is just you talk about starting with humility, and and this is such a such a big one because you know I think we have this uh, intellectual hubris, if you will, in sales or. People think you know they get a little bit of experience, a little bit of knowledge, and you know sort of the Dunning Kruger effect that people talk about is you know we've mm-hmm. acquired enough just to sort of be dangerous, and we think we don't need to learn anything more. But that that is really the lack of humility we're talking about. It's not this self-effacing, self-deprecating definition of humility that we talk about. It's really an intellectual humility.
1: Yes, I, I, I agree hundred percent. I I, fu- I have found in my career that there are. People who actually, well, they don't say it this way. They they act as if, or think as if, humility is a weakness. Humility is actually the greatest strength you can have because it says, you know, I don't, I don't have to have all the answers. In fact, I don't have all the answers, and, mm-hmm. and I, but I'm going to get the answers for you, and I'm going, but but I'm not. I'm not the end-all be-all, and it does happen in in a lot of in a lot of uh, roles or a lot of industries. But it happens in sales a lot, where no, this is how I show my credibility is that I know it all and that I'm, you know, I'm the 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 the, the guy or the woman with all the answers, and and that's <laughs> just the, accomplishes just the opposite of what you want. <laughs> um, it's it's a false sense of of, of credibility, uh, and again, you can't be the ah shucks. I don't know anything kind of guy. And, you know, woe, the martyr, that's not it either. But humility is this quiet strength that says, look, I've really paid the price to learn as much as I can about your company and what your needs are, but I don't have all the answers. I have integrity and I'm going to make sure that we, you know, deliver on what we promise we can deliver and things that I, I don't have answers on or where we make mistakes, we're going to we're going to make it right. And and all of those are are, you know, actions of humility. Yeah, I mean, you had the this phrase in
2: the book that humility keeps me curious, and mm-hmm. and that is so true. It is is you know, I always looked at it, sort serve? Of, it triggered a thought in my mind: is that you know the you said that keeps you in a state of continuous learning, your humility, and this right. this is what we need to have as professionals, certainly in sales, and it's one of the topics that I I talk about frequently in the show. Is is that there's not enough investment of self in this continuous learning. And I don't mean just continuous learning from an experiential standpoint, because this is what a lot of people default to is, well, hey, I'm in this job, I'm experiencing lots of different things, I'm learning, but that's not enough. You, ha- you got to seek knowledge in other dimensions in order to make you better at what you're doing in your
1: job. I I couldn't agree more, Andy. I, I do a lot of, uh, I I do final interviews with, with our final finalist client partners before they, before they, the hiring manager makes a decision to bring them on. I meet with each one of them and, and we call it, you know, the different competencies we look for. We look for consultative selling, which everybody looks for, but, but how I look for consult someone who's very consultative is just what you said their natural curiosity they ask a lot of good questions not because every sales course tells you to ask questions but because they're naturally curious and and that speaks volumes to me about how consultative they're going to be and honestly how humble they are if they're naturally curious that they're they're asking these questions because they really want to know because they don't know and that's, mm-hmm. that's the essence of humility. No, I, I don't know. I'm, I really want to know. Now, why do you do this this way? Why, did you, why do you have this process? Or how can you do it? And, and I'm genuinely curious and interested in you and in your company and your, in your operations. And that's the, the, a great strength. And it's, it's all founded in humility.
2: Yeah, I thought one of the great things you talked about in the book was, was uh, you know, this link. You said researchers find the link between humility and again, we're talking about this—this this as an intellectual humility, not this, mm-hmm. like I said, this self-effacing behavior. This link between humility and your ability to maintain your self-esteem, which is very important.
1: Sure, absolutely.
2: I mean, it's 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 the the humility that gives you the the open mind, and to my mind, the resilience to withstand the tough times.
1: Yeah, I I I, I agree. Excellent. Well, um, Todd. It's been fantastic to talk with you. Oh, I've learned a lot from you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for for asking me. (laughs) Well,
2: thanks for coming. So if people want to connect with you, how would they do that?
1: Uh, If they go to, well, if they go to the franklincovey.com website, as you mentioned, I'm on the executive team. And so you can find me there. And uh, then specifically to the book, it's uh, getbetterbook.com. And then there are links there as as well to connect with me and, and more content on the book.
2: Perfect. All right. Todd, thank you very much. We'll look forward to doing it again.
1: Thank you, Andy. Good to meet you.
2: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Todd Davis, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a view and let us know how we're doing, we'd really appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.